Hello and welcome to UCD ScholarCast. My name is Malcolm Sen and I'm the series editor of Irish Studies and the Environmental Humanities. The following lecture entitled Neoliberal Ecology with Irish Characteristics will be given by Sherry Deckard, lecturer in the School of English at University College Dublin. IFSC is a way of organizing nature, neoliberal ecology, and Irish literature. The emergence of environmental humanities in Ireland coincides with the intensification of technocratic approaches to funding of environmental research, while calling for transdisciplinary projects in which humanities and social sciences researchers are involved in project design rather than tacked on as added value. The EU Horizon 2020 scheme seems mostly oriented towards producing bankable technological solutions to the problems of climate crisis, energy, and food confronting contemporary Europe. This forecloses the possibilities of investigating alternative organizations of nature society or interrogating the potential ecological consequences of imposing new technological life worlds. Irish national schemes have also emphasized the degree to which technocratic solutions should be monetized, part of their ongoing drive to bolster a knowledge economy and to convert universities into patent factories. Tellingly, the National Food Harvest 2020 conception of environment revolves around the desire to greenwash the agri-industry. The report opens by declaring, quote, Ireland's historic association with the colour green is linked to our unspoilt agricultural landscape and our temperate climate. The modern use of green to identify concern for the natural environment has, for some time, been recognised as representing a natural marketing opportunity for Irish agri-food to build on." End quote. This cynical appropriation of green strips the word not only of its ethical and political connotations, but also represses the history of ecological imperialism implicit in the transformation of Ireland into an emerald isle. Whether the mass deforestations of early plantation or the violence of what Marx called the clearing of the estate of Ireland, which enabled the 19th century conversion to grazier monoculture via new technologies of cattle ranching. Given the ongoing marketization of the Irish University and the unprecedented commoditization of new ecological commons under neoliberal capitalism, environmental humanities approaches which bridge the two cultures, historicize conceptions of environment, and attempt to form emancipatory configurations of knowledge seem all the more vital. Humanistic approaches challenge the functionalist economic calculus of profit and loss, which broaches ecological issues only in terms of cost-benefit analyses or hazard, rather than ethics and politics, and encourage the sciences to incorporate historicized analysis of the complexity of social and cultural factors into conceptions such as earth systems and evolving technologies. Conversely, natural sciences and social sciences bring essential knowledge into the arts, which often neglect science and technology in their concentration on the human. In order to counter the politics of neoliberal knowledge production, which intensifies the creation of specialized silos, faculties of knowledge need to be epistemologically reunified. 
Environmental historian Jason W. Moore argues that a post-disciplinary knowledge movement should also seek to transcend the limits of modernist ontologies based on dualist abstractions of man versus nature in favor of a broad sense of ecology as the fundamental interpenetration of human nature with the rest of nature. Moore calls for scholarship that generates new narratives and analyses of our multiple pasts and possible futures, as if, quote, nature matters, as producer, no less than product of world historical change, end quote. Such a world historical perspective has the potential to introduce transnational horizons to environmental humanities, avoiding the national exceptionalism that has sometimes circumscribed the formation of particular subfields. It also introduces the potential to investigate environmental problems at different temporal and geographical scales, bringing an understanding of how geopolitical formations across multiple territories affect the teleconnection of local ecosystems and the larger biosphere. In the specific case of Irish cultural analysis, such an approach entails not merely examining representations of green poetics, nature writing, or pastoral genres in relation to Ireland's history as colony and economic semi-periphery, but rather analyzing how texts and artifacts across all genres and medias register the socio-ecological relations pertinent to the organization of nature society at different points of Ireland's historical ecological regimes. Whether these be urban environments or cattle ranches, fishing littorals or salmon farms, sewage plants or bogs. As Lucy Collins remarks, much trend-disciplinary research in Ireland in areas such as built environments, migrant studies, heritage studies, social justice, or gender and queer studies is already inherently ecological, but is not always consciously recognized as such. More expansive dialectical understandings of ecology as comprising the whole of nature-society relations from farming to pharma to financialization are crucial to forming configurations of knowledge able not only to take account of past environmental changes, but to respond to the crises of the neoliberal present. In this lecture, I want to focus on the contemporary, briefly outlining in Part 1 what might be called neoliberal ecology with Irish characteristics. In Part 2, I will turn to ways in which literary criticism might begin to investigate how the socio-ecological relations corresponding to neoliberal nature society are mediated in contemporary Irish fiction before and after the boom, both as thematic content and as form. Part 1. Neoliberal Ecology with Irish Characteristics In Jason Moore's formulation, Neoliberalism should be understood not merely in terms of political economy, but rather as an ecological regime that is constituted through the bundling of particular patterns of socio-ecological relations, including class structure, gender, race, and sexuality, technological innovations and epistemes, appropriations of extra-human natures and animal labor, and development of productive forces. The neoliberal regime is distinguished by the large-scale penetration of finance capital into the global reproduction of human and extra-human natures. 
the geographer Neil Smith was one of the first to critique the invention of nature banking. The development of ecological commodities and the manufacture of scarcity of allowable natural destruction created new markets and ecological goods and bads, bundling and separating nature into tradable bits of capital, from biodiversity credits, wetland, bog, and fishery credits, air and water pollution credits, to carbon credits. These could be traded on environmental derivatives markets to financiers speculating on increased prices as ecological crisis accelerated. If previous forms of commodification emphasized the transformation of ecological surpluses into use values for capitalist production, oil into energy, or grains into bread, Smith argued that the ecological commodities of so-called green capitalism were not intended for production, but rather for marketization. Nature was reconceived as financial accumulation strategy, driven by neoliberal insistence that private market economic measurements and mitigation banking should substitute social responsibility and environmental politics. Transferring stewardship of the commons to private business interests and bringing all of nature under the control of the markets. Yet, neoliberal financialization extends beyond ecological derivatives to the entirety of nature society. As Moore puts it, quote, Wall Street becomes a way of organizing all of nature, characterized by the financialization of any income generating activity. From the agro-food sector to working-class households that depend on credit cards to pay groceries and medical bills, global nature has become dependent on a circuit of capital premised on accumulation by financial means rather than industrial and agricultural production. Finance capital in the neoliberal era has penetrated everyday life as never before, and in so doing has sought to remake human and extra-human nature in its own image." The neoliberal regime has been distinguished by the transition from stakeholder to shareholder capitalism, the expansion of profit maximization strategies rather than the unprecedented expansion across space which marked earlier accumulation regimes, and the pioneering of new extractive strategies across economic sectors accompanied by asset stripping, the rapid subsumption and exhaustion of previously uncommodified human and extrahuman natures. Neoliberalism is distinctive for the impatience and short-term scope of its profit-making strategies. The temporal hegemony of finance capital over the accumulation process can clearly be seen in the Irish context. Here, the neoliberal regime has been characterized by peripheral dependency on foreign capital, the tendency towards financialization and housing speculation rather than industrial production, the intensification of earlier monocultures formed under colonialism, such as the beef and dairy economies, the formation of new monocultures organized around new commodity frontiers and biocommodities, and the enclosure of remaining commons, as in water and gas. Ireland's boom was preconditioned by what Patter Kirby and Michael Cronin describe as its subservient integration into radical free market fundamentalism. Ireland's tigerhood was dependent on offering tax breaks to the multinational corporates it courted, transforming the country into a tax haven and secrecy jurisdiction zone, and concentrating urban employment in low-paid service jobs. 
the advent of informational capitalism and the development of financial services via the new Irish Financial Services Centre, or IFSC, positioned Ireland as an export platform for foreign capital and the electronics and IT industries, with nearly every high-profile transnat with an IT portfolio establishing a European base in Ireland. As such, we could adapt more to say that the IFSC is a way of organising nature, but in subordinate relation to Wall Street and the European Central Bank. Riley asking why the boom was dominated by financial and property speculation rather than indigenous exports or national industries in fisheries and gas, which had been systemically underdeveloped in Ireland. Connor McCabe observes that, quote, the type of business activities which dominated the Irish economy in the 20th century cattle exports to Britain and financial investment in London, the development of greenfield sites and the construction of factories and office buildings to facilitate foreign industrial and commercial investment, the birth of the suburbs and subsequent housing booms predicated on an expanding urban workforce saw the development of an indigenous moneyed class based around cattle, construction, and banking. End quote. This triad is characteristic of the nation's semi peripheral status. Ireland's so called green rural countryside should not be seen as the product of temporal backwardness, innately pastoral and environmentally neutral but rather as the structural product of peripheral modernity, characterized by the uneven development of some sectors to the exclusion of others in the favor of particular class interests. In this case, the overdevelopment of the conveyor belt agro-export economy. The dairy and grazier monocultures are tartly described in one Kevin Berry short story as, quote, emitting a general sensation of slurry, end quote. The phrase is evocative of the dependence of the agri-food sector on petrochemical fertilizers, the imported oil and GM fodder which underlies the production of cheap food, as well as the immense carbon emissions produced by methane-expelling livestock and the pollution of Irish watersheds by fecal coliforms and nitrate runoffs. The emerald tiger is, in these terms, more brown than green, contrary to the government's greenwash vision of unspoilt agricultural landscape. Outside of the agro-industry, Ireland has followed a similar path to other semi-peripheries such as Mexico in becoming what Robert Allen calls a pollution haven for the processing wings of chemical and pharmaceutical corporations fleeing environmental regulation and seeking to exploit Ireland's cheap groundwater resources. From the 1970s onwards, giants of the global chemical industry set up shop in Ireland, including SmithKline, Pfizer, Merck, Shearing Plow, and Rush, which accounted for nearly 70% of pharmaceutical industry output worldwide. Neoliberal financial markets have consistently orchestrated decisions as to which forms of pollution are produced and which eradicated, as in the infamous statement by Lawrence Summers that Africa was, quote, underpolluted because the environmentally induced loss of life in more developed countries was allegedly more expensive to the world economy compared with the cheapness of life and lost wages in Africa. In the Irish context, the state set out to attract quote, industries of hazard, end quote, colluding with the powerful chemical lobby to soften EU environmental regulations. The EPA's main focus became managing environmental policy 
to ensure economic performance, rather than protecting ecosystems, a shift which George Taylor describes as, quote, the complicated process of organizing consent around new definitions of the extent to which pollution can be justified, end quote. Post-bust, this politics of pollution has only been exacerbated as captured in the absurd semantics of the new plan for a green IFSC that will belatedly embrace nature as financial accumulation strategy. Quote, We have the natural resources, the talent, and the government commitment necessary to become a hub for green enterprise. The planned Green Irish Financial Services Centre will build on the success of the IFSC and become a leading player in the global carbon market and promote Ireland as a centre of excellence in the management of carbon. End quote. Besides providing new financial services and ecological commodities trading, the greening of the IFSC seems to consist largely of adding the word green to its title, while using accelerating climate crisis to force through new forms of capital extraction. Since the collapse of the tiger, the Irish government's answer to the flight of multinational capital has been new rounds of neoliberalization seeking to enclose, as the IMF 2010 Memorandum of Understanding promised, new commons of water, oil, and natural gas via water privatization, fish farming, fracking, and sale of offshore petroleum exploration licenses to transnational oil companies. This has also involved asset stripping the public sector, intensifying the knowledge economy, flexibilizing labor, and restructuring higher education to prioritize entrepreneurial smart technologies, and opening up new commodity frontiers via bioprospecting, frantically scouring the natural world for subatomic commodities and patentable genetic material that can be transformed into lab-manufactured genes. In her prescient 1996 discussion of DuPont's Oncomouth, Donna Haraway observed that, quote, biology, life itself, has become a capital accumulation strategy, end quote. In the neoliberal regime, ecosystems and microbiomes are being unbundled on unprecedented levels in order to enable privatization of their constituent parts, forging new commodities for what Kaushik Sundarajan calls biocapitalism. Within Ireland, biocommoditization has been largely organized around pre-existing monocultures in pharma, agriculture, and energy. Whether in the form of genetic tests to identify thoroughbred horses with the greatest genetic potential for race course success, or research by university life sciences departments intended to identify molecular mechanisms of chronic diseases so that transnational biopharma funders such as GlaxoSmithKline can manufacture novel diagnostic solutions and therapies, or the trials of transgenic, allegedly blight-resistant potatoes conducted by Ireland's agricultural agency Chagusk, or the development of biomass plantations to replace the turf-based energy regime in the now-exhausted peat bogs which bore Nimona has strip-mined. Jason Moore argues that biotech is a short-term fix that has not yet provided a productivity revolution sufficient to resolve the current decline of cheap food and energy inputs. It is a version of neoliberalism 2.0 with diminishing returns. 
The socio-ecological violence of this eked-out regime is pervasive in the reconstitution of human subjectivity as post-genomic and the decisive reshaping of the rules of reproduction, which are accompanied by the intensification of forms of state discipline, austerity, and biopolitical control, especially of the bodies of the poor, dispossessed, minority populations, and marginalized. Since 2010, 8 out of 10 biopharma giants have been based in Ireland, continuing to exploit tax avoidance laws. As such, Ireland is integral to the production of what Beatrice Preciado calls pharmacopornographic capitalism, manufacturing up to six of the so-called blockbuster drugs that annually earn more than $1 billion. Many of these are psychotropics, which Preciado argues reconstitute subjectivities through, quote, microprosthetic mechanisms of control, end quote. As such, there is a dialectical relation to be uncovered in the Irish pharma complex between the mass manufacture of SSRIs and SNRIs for transnational corporations availing of tax and pollution havens, the stark violence of neoliberal austerity, precarity, and biopolitical control enforced by state apparatuses, and the individual consumption of prescription drugs to alleviate the pain. Given the prevalence of cattle and construction, pharma and financialization within the Irish neoliberal ecology, we might ask how cultural production mediates and represents the particular organizations of nature society corresponding to each. While some critics during the Tiger bemoaned the absence of literature reckoning with the excess of the boom, in retrospect, Irish literature of the period appears saturated with the transformative violence of the neoliberal regime and its subsequent crisis. In some texts, this is only at the level of the political unconscious. In others, it is more explicit and visible, particularly in those texts whose hybridized aesthetics combine realism with satire, speculative, or science-fictional aesthetics to express critique of reality that seems unreal or unrepresentable. Michael Niblett has argued that the periodic exhaustion of ecological regimes might correspond to upswings in Gothic, irrealist, and supernatural tropes that register the conjuncture of fading and emergent regimes and the corresponding dissolution and reconstitution of social realities. In the second part of this talk, I will finish by suggesting how Irish literary criticism might take up the call of environmental humanities and world ecological criticism, searching out not so much green representations of landscapes or other forms of nature, but rather seeking to discern how contemporary texts mediate the financialization of everyday life and embody the affects corresponding to neoliberal nature society, whether the delirium of the housing bubble or the anxiety of the post-genomic. Part 2. Pharma, Farming and Finance, Neoliberal Ecology in Irish Literature Anne Enright's The Forgotten Waltz, published in 2011, is narrated from a post-boom perspective, looking back on the hysteria of the housing bubble in 2007, the eve of the crash. While the novel is firmly rooted in lyrical realism and confined to a middle-class perspective whose solipsism is represented by unreliable first-person narration, its form and aesthetics are nonetheless marked by socio-ecological crisis, punctuated by irrealist, eco-Gothic imagery. 
The narrator and her first partner have jobs metonymic of the IT revolution, which transformed Ireland into a reticular networked knowledge economy, the world center for the translation of computer material, the largest exporter of PC-based software in Europe. Connor is a happening geek mastering in multimedia, while she works for Rathlin Communications, a company which translates European companies' websites for the English-language web. Together, they apply for a subprime mortgage and buy a small house at the height of the bubble, experiencing the inflation of housing prices and the ascendancy of fictitious capital, money appearing seemingly from nowhere, as a kind of uncanny growth, as if the house itself were alive. Quote, Listen to the money. The place was going up by 75 euro a day, he said, which was, he did the calculations under flickering eyelids, about five cents a minute. You could almost feel it, a pushing in the walls. The toaster would pop out fibers. The wood of the new laid floors would squeeze out paper money and start to flower. End quote. The eerealist tropes of this passage clearly capture the uncanny socio-ecological transformation of the built environment. The false euphoria of financialization penetrates the households and their very subjectivities, inflating their own desire for each other. Quote, six months, nine, I don't know how long that phase lasted. Mortgage love, shagging at 5.3%. Until one day, we decided to take out a couple of car loans and get married and the money instead, end quote. This is marriage on credit. Love is debt-based spending. Under the dead hand of their mortgage, however, the narrator soon finds her desire waning and begins a delirious affair with Sean, a married investment consultant, entering into a new phase of intoxication. The marriage and affair thus present a psychosexual correlative to financialization and the restless circulation of capital during the housing bubble. In the second part of the novel, when the crash occurs, the narrative sense of urgent intoxication correspondingly deflates, formally mirroring the evacuation of capital and the collapse of existing relations, registered once more in ecological terms. Quote, if you listen to the car radio, all the money in the country has just evaporated. You could almost see it rising off the rooftops like steam. End quote. When Sean leaves his wife for the narrator, they are trapped together in the house of her dead mother, originally listed on the market at 2.5 million euros, but now a dead asset, frozen and unsellable, like the bankrupt developer's properties held by Nama. Quote, no one will buy it, so that's how much it's worth. Nothing. Despite which, we will owe tax based on that two and a bit, for a house that is currently worth whistling for. I can't figure out the fake money from the real, end quote. Trapped in this zombie house, this, quote, magic box, this trap, end quote. Their personal relationship is hollowed out, subjected to quantification, as she calculates the price of their love at so much per kiss. As their relation becomes increasingly zombified, the novel's realism is punctuated by gothic tropes. Their shoes leave bloody footprints in the supermarket. Sean bites her lip when he kisses her. She hallucinates that she is being transformed into a zombie wife. Eco-Gothic erupts even more powerfully in Kevin Barry's comically apocalyptic short story, The Fjord of Killari, from his collection Dark as the Island in 2012. 
In the story, a middle-aged Dubliner buys a hotel in a fjord in a rain-cursed town in the western periphery of Ireland and is forced to weather a storm that drowns the town. His sensation of soul sickness and physical decay derives from midlife crisis, but can also be read as registering socio-ecological exhaustion of the larger accumulation regime. Quote, On turning forty the previous year, I had sensed exhaustion rising up in me like rot. End quote. He becomes feverish with the notion of a westward flight into the countryside, a false expectation of pastoral return to an authentic past in search of solace from the exhausted present. But far from a rural paradise, he encounters, quote, end of the fucking world stuff, end quote, an apocalyptic flood heralding the larger menace of rising sea levels under global climate change and in a collapsing ecology in which both human and extra-human nature seem to be devouring each other. The story offers a parade of imagery of vampiric draining and extraction. His bar staff, imported flexible labor, wear, quote, love bites on their necks, feasting delightedly on one another. A black-backed gull in a tree outside the hotel prizes the head off its mate and starts to eat it. Upon learning that her husband has conducted an affair with her sister, a woman bites a chunk out of his neck, drawing blood in great angry spurts. The story's conclusion captures the fatalistic response of many middle-class Dubliners to the crash and the greater crisis of the neoliberal regime on the horizon. The bar owner holds a disco as the floodwaters rise, pouring booze down the throats of his clients and fostering their grim hilarity while relinquishing himself to masochistic resignation. Quote, The world opened out to its grim beyonds, and I realized that at 40, one must learn the rigors of acceptance. End quote. Barry viciously satirizes the bourgeois structure of feeling that submits to austerity in the Troika's discipline without protest, drowning its sorrows in drink. That the story's apocalypse is only partial, confined to the local, flooding Killari while the rest of the country was, quote, going about its humdrum Monday night business, end quote, is a joke on rural stereotypes but also suggests the uneven impact of ecological crisis, where the peripheries bear the brunt of ecological degradation and capital flight. It is in these sites where the future impact of climate crisis will be gravest, experienced not as total apocalypse, but rather as progressive erosions of the web of life. Meanwhile, in enclaves of privilege, the effects are less visible, cushioned by the appropriation of land, capital, and resources. The concluding lines gesture back to the earlier regime of plantation in Ireland, noting that, quote, 1648 was a year shy of Cromwell's landing in Ireland, and already the inn at Killary Fjord was in business. It would see out this disaster, too, end quote. The story foregrounds the uneven distribution of power, resources, and infrastructure between Dublin's core and the country's internal peripheries, which is the legacy of the colonial export-based grazier economy and that was only intensified during neoliberalization. In Barry's collection, as in his recent apocalyptic novel, City of Bohane, set in a post-oil dystopian Ireland, we can thus interpret the eruption of eco-Gothic tropes and irrealism as a kind of shock aesthetics which register ecological exhaustion, energy crisis, and the shock doctrine policies of austerity. 
One of the most explicit registrations of financialization, property development, and privatization at the height of the boom is offered in Julian Guff's Jude Level 1, written in 2007, on the cusp of the collapse. In contrast to the careful formal structure of Enright's novel or Barry's contained stories, Guff's manic narrative is wildly peripatetic and seemingly unstructured. It melds picaresque and science-fictional elements into a satire whose temporal breathlessness and phantasmagorical excess mirror the social sensorium of radical space-time commensuration and fetishized speed within the tiger's dromocratic revolution, when information and fictitious capital circulated at dizzying rates. Jude encounters an entrepreneur in Galway who imagines the total commoditization of knowledge via a smartphone-like device, exalting, quote, Our algorithm knows where you are, thanks to the global positioning system. It knows who you are, thanks to the information you provided when you set up your account, and it knows what your problem is likely to be. Each time, the sea of information by which you are surrounded is desalinated, distilled, filtered into a drop of wisdom to slake your thirst. Owning a salmon of knowledge will soon make all the sense in the world trademark. End quote. The potential for biopolitical surveillance is obscured beneath the chummy appropriation of the national myth of Finn McCool. The novel's satire of the Tiger regime directly invokes the links between informational economy and biocapitalism when Jude's body is reconstructed after an explosion by means of a, quote, revolutionary high-tech material developed here in Ireland by the Westcom Corporation, end quote. The nasal phallic tumescences Jude subsequently endures absurdly capture the burgeoning of body modification technologies under the neoliberal regime, with their potential for both disciplinary control and subversion of imposed social norms. An earlier Tiger-era novel, Anne Haverty's One Day a Tiger, published in 1998, similarly addresses concerns of biocapitalism and genetic modification, this time in the realm of agriculture. Haverty brilliantly satirizes Ireland's green revolution and turn towards biotechnology via its story of a tipperary farmer's troubled love for a GM sheep with human genes, offering Missy the Lamb as the ovine counterpart to Haraway's Oncomouse and Scotland's Dowley. When the protagonist first locks eyes with the lamb, her presence undermines his initial perception of her as an agricultural commodity. Quote, her eyes were fixed on me, glittering and unfathomable, but with a look of hope and pathos. It was a look I had seen in no lamb's eyes before. Almost at once I knew I had to have her, not for any farmer's purpose, not for meat or to breed form, but to watch and to understand. End quote. The transgenic lamb is anthropomorphized in proprietarian terms as a romantic object by the protagonist, but also operates as a troubling signifier of the alterity of animal ontology. Missy disrupts the fundamental dualism of human versus animal that underlies a grazier monoculture dependent on exploiting and modifying animal nature for the human animal's consumption. This speculative premise is cleverly interwoven with the stylistic parody of Irish pastoral romance that refuses the romanticization of rural life, thus mingling irrealist and realist elements in its aesthetics. 
The novel's description of the Agricultural Research Institute explodes idealized conceptions of the Irish countryside. Quote, The institute was an industry-looking place, out on the county Lough border. Pens housed the animals reared with intensive and experimental methods. Beyond them was what looked like a mile of high-tech pens, some containing malaise of species, emitting the odd, subdued bleat or bellow or moo, others empty with hose-down concrete, steaming faintly in the afternoon sun. This was Missy's birthplace. Progressive, tidy, scientific, more attractive to humans than to animals, devoted to life, certainly, rather than death, in the short term at least. Still, it reminded me of a progressive concentration camp in some pastoral spot, like Poland. The only honest-to-God agricultural thing about it was the smell of silage, end quote. In emphasizing the industrial modernity of factory farming, the passage underscores the violence of the agri-food complex and anxiously invokes the prospect of racist eugenics in relation to biotech. The other factories shaping everyday life during the boom, the transnational pharmaceutical plants, are depicted in Molly McCluskey's Protection, written in 2005, which in similar fashion to Haverty interweaves realist and speculative aesthetics, interleaving a banal adultery plot in the frame narrative with a cross-genre exploration of the supplanting of organic memory with synthetic commodities. The main protagonist becomes addicted to diaxidril, a fictional drug intended to treat mild cognitive impairment, which allows her to relive old memories. A shill for the drug compares it to the psychotropic revolution in serotonin reuptake inhibitors, arguing, quote, everybody wants to be sharper. Diax will reach the tipping point and bang, suddenly half the people you know are on it and the other half have been on it or are about to go on it, like Prozac in the 90s, end quote. The difference, however, is that while antidepressants mute you, quote, diaxidril wakes you up, providing a libidinal kick that refashions consumers' desires so that they can become better functioning neoliberal subjects. As a pharmaceutical prosthesis, diax enables the protagonist to keep up with the dizzying pace of immaterial labor in Tiger Ireland and soothes the constant draining of her emotional energies, quote, she had begun to feel a new mental energy, an excitement, really like the kind she used to feel when she was energized by a new idea or project, except now the excitement was there all day and didn't depend on any physical stimulus. She felt plugged in, attentive, end quote. But the commoditization of her memories inevitably results in deeper alienation, as not only her surplus labor is appropriated, but the internal stuff of her subjectivity, quote, a strange raggedness attached itself to those fantasies, as though she had literally torn herself away from her life. End quote. The diax thus functions on multiple symbolic levels, figuring the intensification of cognitive reflexivity in Ireland's knowledge economy, and acting as an objective correlative to the surreal inflations of fictitious capital during the bubble. But it also registers the biopharma complex, the mining of vertical frontiers in life and the commoditization of human nature on a molecular scale. In an interview, novelist Mike McCormick describes being inspired by his temporary employment at a pharmaceutical company in Westport, where he became fascinated by how, quote, people's bodies acquired economic and political value, end quote. 
McCormick's Tiger Aaron novel, Notes from a Coma, written in 2005, investigates the conjunction of biocommodification with the intensification of biopolitical control. Realist aesthetics combined with a speculative plotline, imagining the use of Tiger Ireland as a lab for EU testing of new disciplinary apparatuses. As described by a government booster, prisoners will no longer be incarcerated in jails, but permanently sedated on offshore coma ships. Quote, the Somnos project will be carried out before the eyes of the world, a gallery of expectant nations looking on, fingers crossed that souls can be racked and stacked in prison ICUs, atoning at half the price of five-star hotel accommodation. What Kevin wants to show is that we moved on from the days of the Celtic Tiger. We're not just a nation of mobile phone salesmen or telesales spooks or production line ops. We're out there now with a shiny piece of R&D all our own, end quote. Crucially, the project is not only a penal experiment generating political capital, but entrepreneurial, designed to profit from the global expansion of prison and securitization industries by turning Ireland, already an offshore tax haven, into an offshore prison. McCormick's post-boom collection, Late Forensic Songs, written in 2012, continues in this vein, representing the intensification of disciplinary technologies in conjunction with the imposition of neoliberal austerity after the bailout. The stories chronicle the increase of soft power, imagining forms of, quote, voluntary compliance in which the self is the first object of suspicion, each man responsible for his own surveillance, end quote, and dole claimants are forced to write misery-lit memoirs. They also imagine the intensification of apparatuses of hard power, where, quote, the night skies of Mayo are crossed with planes, satellites, and unmanned drones, end quote, and where incarcerated prisoners are forced to work as unpaid labor, beta testing for the transnational gaming industry. McCormick's fiction powerfully captures the double dynamic of neoliberal governmentality, which deregulates markets, while simultaneously intensifying its regulation and radical subordination of all forms of life. The literatures of the Irish boom and bust often seem only to provide negative critique of this dynamic, couched in irrealist or satirical aesthetics, as if to admit the difficulty of calling new political imaginaries and alternative nature society organizations into living reality. Given this tendency, it is all the more important for environmental humanities to interrogate the possibilities for political transformation in the social sphere. Ireland's four decades of community protests against environmental issues, ranging from the nuclear industry to toxic waste incinerators to GMO food, to shell to seize activism against the Corb pipeline, to the recent campaigns against housing taxes and water privatization, all offer evidence of the persistence of organizational forms which reject the neoliberal regime's oppressive configuration of nature society. Tasks for future scholarship might be then not only to excavate these histories and to read them in juxtaposition with our current conjuncture, but also to draw on scientific discoveries and humanistic inquiries in order to imagine the ways in which nature society can be reconfigured to be more emancipatory and renewing of the dialectical interrelations between humans and the rest of nature.
You have been listening to Sharae Deckard in this UCD ScholarCast as part of the series Irish Studies and the Environmental Humanities. A transcript of this lecture can be downloaded at ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast. Thank you.